0: Ender's game opens in a world irrevocably changed by first contact with alien life in the form of the buggers. Humanity has beaten back the bugger invasions twice at great cost. Ender Wigan is the third child born to his family, a genius like his brother and sister. His mind and temperament make him a prime candidate for the battle school, an international military academy located on a space station. Colonel Graff, the director of the school, and the other cadre of the International Fleet identify Ender before he even gets to the battle school as the most promising candidate for Humanity Savior they've yet seen. Six-year-old Ender undergoes severe isolation, pressure, and neglect at the hands of Graf and his cohort. He is kept motivated by his desire to keep his gentle sister, Valentine, safe, and kept human by the fear of becoming like his monstrous brother, Peter. Raph, though conflicted due to his affection for Ender and the obvious damaging effect of his actions on Ender's psyche, continues his torment unrelenting, believing that only if he pushes Ender to his limits in training and makes him believe that no outside authority would ever protect him, would Ender realize his full potential as a commander. Eventually, Ender is given a team of students to command and faces increasingly difficult and complex battle simulations. As Ender nears his psychological breaking point, he is faced with his final exam, a seemingly impossible fight against a well-protected alien planet. Ender, thinking to disqualify himself from further training by attacking a civilian populace, directs his soldiers straight to the planet's surface, where their attack creates a chain reaction annihilating both the planet and all the surrounding spacecraft. Ender and his team are then informed that they had not been running simulations at all, but commanding real troops against real enemies and had, that day, annihilated all traces of the bugger threat. Ender is devastated because the very understanding that made him capable of beating the buggers had also made him empathize with and love them. Ender never wanted to be a killer, but in the end, he didn't have a choice. Later, Ender and his sister Valentine are sent with the first ship to colonize a bugger world. While there, Ender discovers that the buggers have formed a mental connection with them prior to their destruction. He finds a dormant queen in a cocoon, waiting to be revived by him. From his connection with this queen, he learns that the buggers had never realized that the humans were intelligent life, had repented of their invasion once they had understood this and never planned to return to Earth. They also forgave Ender for destroying them, and he, in turn, promised to bring their race back to life. The book ends with Ender's promise and his publication of a work describing what the Hive Queen had told him. Signed, The Speaker for the Dead.
1: Welcome to Sci-Fi Sidebar. I'm Cece, your co-host.
2: I'm Peter, your other co-host.
1: This month we're covering Ender's Game. It's a book that we've loved since we were a lot younger, and so we thought we would uh, start off on a strong foot with something we're pretty familiar with. So that was really a pretty um, sparse overview of Ender's Game. It's a pretty complex book that takes place in a lot of phases, so we just wanted to bring up the points that were going to be most salient to our discussion. And I think it's best to start that conversation in the world that Ender was born into back on Earth before any of the battle school stuff happened. Um, it's a world where people, all the nations are united sort of out of necessity. It's a drive to survive situation.
2: It's a world of fear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a world of fear. And <clears throat> with it comes a lot of regulations. Like there's a two-child limit on all families with great punishment upon those who have more than two children. Um, and Ender is, in fact, a third child, which is part of what sets him apart from the very beginning. In fact, I think the first chapter is called Third, because it's so key to his identity that he sort of, in a weird way, wasn't supposed to be born.
2: So I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that Ender wasn't an illegal child. He was, I mean, I think a major part of him is that he's special because the government commissioned him. They told his parents that, hey, you have to have a third child. Your first two kids were almost there. When I say that, I mean like the government we talked about earlier. That the government was kind of cherry picking the best and brightest. Well, his older sister was the more moderate of Ender, right? He she was like the the kinder half, and right. whereas Peter, he feared Peter was brutal. Peter was showed serial killer ish tendencies. Yeah, he was animals. that
1: sort of really sadistic child who you see and you're like, you're not just a bully, like, you're pretty messed up, like, you need professional help. Um, and Ender feared him terribly when he was a child. And so, the International Fleet, which looks out for them, uh, looks out for these kids, does so by installing monitors in three-year-olds, and the monitors are not very well explained, Peter, but they're kind of a, um, like a spinal implant. It yeah, it seems, seems like, like.
2: It's, it's ocular and probably looks at your chemistry. I guess. I
1: think. Yeah, it seems like it has kind of a um. A, like a pretty invasive grasp on your body, and it sort of hijacks your senses as a child. So the point is, is that they put in these monitors so they can see what you see and hear what you hear, and so on and so forth, which right off the bat like sort of as a casual fact of this universe is pretty messed up
2: yeah they kind of drop it on you like they're not supposed to talk about that yeah it's like, like no it's all sly <laughs> like that's, that's a problem
1: yeah um, it's sort of one of those kind of classic cases of privacy is thrown out um, when defense is sort of the alternative which is often taken to an extreme especially in sci-fi I feel like that's a fairly common trope Um, the sort of trope of surveillance.
2: Yeah, the trope of surveillance and, like, survival above all else. I mean, like, you know, you look at America, and America's got things like the Patriot Act. That's right. That prioritize national defense over private... uh, Privacy privacy. of its citizens. Privacy of its citizens, right. And so it started off, you can see, in, like, the 1920s, the Supreme Court was requiring that there must be a clear and present danger of outside threats that basically can destroy the United States. And that's just one country... And then now, as you've seen it develop in like the 80s, it was there's a clear and probable danger. And these days, it's basically, there's secret courts, and they can say, this is a possible danger. Right. And they get a court order that lets you do surveillance on citizens. So like, imagine that taking to the nth degree in this universe, where all of humanity is being threatened because we can barely hold off this seemingly all-consuming foe.
1: Yeah, and if we've been confusing about it, um, we should be clear, there's been two invasions from the buggers. Before. Um, the first was uh, pretty brutal. Um,
2: barely driven off.
1: Barely driven off because humanity was completely unprepared. And the second was driven off slightly farther away from Earth, but again, um, only through the very great heroism of a man named Mazer Rackham. Almost got his name wrong. <laughs> backwards. <laughs> razor Mackham. <laughs> <laughs> the great hero of Earth.
2: <laughs> Reminds me of Ockham's Razor. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um. Yeah, the most direct way to have victory is, well, kind of.
2: Yeah, so Mazer Rackham kind of saw... He, he's like an interesting character. We don't really talk about him that much in this episode. But basically, he just was able to kind of see what other people didn't see. And beat the buggers the second time. Out near Jupiter, I think it was?
0: I, I think that's right, yeah.
2: Right, but the idea is that their fleet would have crushed ours. Humanity didn't have a chance. Maze Rackham saved the day.
0: He saw their weakness.
2: And that's when the kind of the international fleet, the IF, realized that one man could make a massive difference. I think that's part of the reason why they instituted the child monitoring program.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um,
1: so, we want to talk some more about Ender's brother, Peter. Because, like we said, he's like, I don't want to say he's messed up because he's, he's the a genius. Act. Yeah. It's like if Ender was completely unrestrained by empathy.
2: He's a highly functioning sociopath. Your research. <laughs>
1: let's let's do our research. He's a highly functioning sociopath. Um, he, yeah, he's he's pretty terrifying, but it's also as the story goes on seems to be a case of like misdirected energy because he is a genius. Ender and both of his siblings are geniuses, and. Peter the oldest is sort of underused because he didn't get to go to the battle school because he was too brutal he didn't have anything holding him back and the military feared it so they didn't give him the shot
2: he needed an outlet and actually one of the more interesting kind of subplots in these books is that uh, Peter started this kind of scheme with Valentine and the they, sister and the sister right We I thought we'd put yeah, so the <laughs> sister who they ended up Basically becoming leaders of the conversation, of the political conversation, on the internet. Which shows that Ocean Scott Card knew, had dead to rights, the importance of the internet. Now, keep in mind, this is like 70 years in the future. And internet right now is already such a powerful tool. You see this in like the uproar or things like net neutrality. People need this the internet to sustain right. themselves, whether it's a social, whether it's like an influential thing.
1: Right, we've gotten to a point where we consider it a utility Exactly. Pretty, pretty much across the board. I mean,
2: some people disagree, but so give that seventy people. more years, and just imagine how important that is. And you can see, like in this story, Peter and Valentine built a political following through the internet, and I could see something like that happening even now. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it sort of it's interesting because this was written well, it was published in 1985, so it shows this really kind of prescience on the part of Orson Scott Card to see the um, the potential. And its I think it is really realistic to imagine that writers... Because that's all, that's all they do. They go online and they write and they start to write columns and they gain all this influence and following and they sort of place themselves on opposite sides of the argument so they can sort of bolster each other through adversarial interactions. Um, and I mean, even if you think about, like, uh, John Oliver... Like, <laughs> no one's naming any pacts after John Oliver, but a lot of people learn about a lot of political issues from him and adopt his beliefs because they, he does such a wonderful job presenting them. So I just think it's interesting um, the way that Orson Scott Card sort of saw that coming, that influence of anyone who could get a medium.
2: Right, so you see Peter masterminding the scheme to for him and Valentine to end up Basically controlling the conversation, like we said, and that's interesting because like after that happens, you don't really hear any more instances of Peter being unnecessarily brutal. Just maybe as a political figure, taking, you know, like jumping up and maybe doing what some people might not do, be willing to do to get that political influence. But other than that he was able to establish himself and kind of find that outlet.
1: He became politically ruthless rather than literally ruthless. Right, which I think is a
2: step in the (laughs) right direction. Which is a step in
1: the right direction. And Valentine at some point says something really interesting to Ender. She says that if you accept that the only people who will end up in power are the people who are seeking it out and who crave it, then Peter, for all his flaws, is really not a very bad person to end up with because at least he's smart enough to do a good job. And... I
2: think that really rings true today. <laughs> yeah, you can see in politics in every level. Every level of politics has people that are... Ob- you have to be a little bit arrogant. Like, if you want to talk about the presidency, you have to be some level of arrogant to think, look at the presidency, ego. I could do that job.
1: Yeah, it's the ultimate act of ego. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, somebody's got to have the ego to step up to that. But you got to have, like, an entire career going for it. Like, you got to really want the power to get the power. So... You know, does intent really matter? Does it matter that Peter's a megalomaniac? Because by the end of the book, you find out he's been a great boon to Earth. He's brought peace in the aftermath of the bugger invasions. He has driven the colonization effort of humanity. He has done only good in his position of power. So, did it matter that he tortured his little brother when they were kids? Really, in the grand scheme of things, was the world worse off because he was there?
2: Well, here's, like, a little lens into the future. I and, mean, like, if you look at the first book of the Lithuania trilogy, or even the end of the first book, they're already calling him, like, saying, like, Peter the Great Hegemon. Like, he was the first great hegemon of Earth, because before this, the hegemon was, like, not a powerful position. It was, like, being the leader of the UN. Yeah. No one particularly cares. <laughs> it was an honor, really. Yeah, it anything. was saying here, we need an international leader to quote-unquote lead humanity, But no one actually acknowledged them. The president of the U.S. in the book still had more power. But when you Peter was the one that gave that position power, gave it legitimacy. When Locke, which was Peter's uh, nom de plume, became the great leader of humanity. So you see the similarity though with Ender when Ender does like some brutal stuff, like when he knew what was going on. Not even like with the the bugger simulation, but like. I mean like you want to talk about that like.
1: Yeah, so um it we didn't talk about it in the sort of initial introduction, but one thing that is kind of key to Ender is that he can be ruthless. Like when he was 6, shortly before he went to the battle school, he actually killed a boy who had been bullying him. Now, he didn't go into this fight meaning to kill him, but he just he had been kept being harassed by this kid and he knew it was going to just keep going and he had this opportunity before him and he's kind of like Well, he says it. He says, you know, if I just, like, kicked him to the ground, I would have won that fight, but I wanted to win every fight thereafter and basically beat the crap out of this kid. And the kid freaking died (laughs) because Ender did it so effectively. But he didn't mean to kill him. He just wanted the guy to leave him alone. So, I mean, that's, again, sort of the question of intent. I actually think intent's really important in this series because uh, that's not the last human that Ender kills by any means.
2: Right, so in battle school, Ender goes and kills, what was his name? Bonzo. 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 Bonzo Madrid. So he kills Bonzo Madrid, and it's the same idea. Ender knows that when he's surrounded and he's not going to beat them all, so the only way he can make sure he wins that fight is if he beats Bonzo like sufficiently. He actually didn't have, didn't have to do that much. I think he just like pushed Bonzo and he slipped.
1: Uh No, I think he kicked him in the chest. Oh,
2: he kicked him in the chest. And maybe the head. But yeah, it was. It wasn't Ender. I think in the, in the when he was a child, he was like kicking the crap out of this kid on the ground. Yeah, like he was obviously going to hurt him because he figured if I win this fight so thoroughly, I'll never have to fight him again. That was kind of his intent in Battle School. Except
1: he wanted to instill fear in his enemy. Exactly. It wasn't. He wasn't doing harm for harm's sake. He just wanted to make his enemy afraid enough of him that the fear overruled the hate, and that the hate would no longer motivate enemy to come after him
2: so i think that's the main difference between ender and peter that peter just needs something to do so he did the violent thing when he was a child but ender needed the final solution he needed some a permanent solution right, that's the that final solution peter bad.
0: yeah <laughs> what are you
2: doing <laughs> Ender needed a per, more permanent solution to a problem that he was having and decided that well i have to do it now otherwise it's going to be keep being an issue and it was that's why he was violent because he saw a meaning to it not just because
1: yeah, he did it strategically exactly it was, it was all all strategy very intentional, not the killing part, but the th- finality deliberate. of the fight exactly was deliberate um but even so, those fights really stayed with him, like he was weighed down by them over the entire book, the first kid still sin on earth, and then later on, he was haunted by this sort of image of his fight with Bonzo where he saw sort of the life go out of his eyes. And originally he thought he was unconscious, but later on he's like, oh my God, I think I killed him. And it just wears on him for years afterwards. And I it seemingly for the rest of his life. So I think at this point we've been spending way too much time on stuff we didn't even really cover in the synopsis. So I want to talk about the guy who is sort of Ender's handler.
2: Another person we didn't mention in the synopsis. <laughs>
1: Another person we didn't mention in the synopsis, but a really important one. Well, we alluded to him. All right, all right continue. Said, the generals whatever and the point is uh this guy's name is Colonel Graff played by Harrison Ford in the film if you recall i think i hope that's right <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I hope that's right anyway <laughs> Graf is a really interesting character because sort of when we're first introduced to him he seems like you know he's a military guy he's he's starched he's professional but he's like kind of kind to Ender and there's this really devastating part where um, Ender's on the shuttle to go up into, uh go up to the space station which is the battle school and um...
2: okay so Cece, we've been kind of ignoring one super interesting character like what do you think about Colonel Graf?
1: Graff is one of my favorite characters, sort of, so in literature. You're, so you're
2: saying is you're for him. I'm for
1: him. All right. <laughs> this podcast is for him. <laughs> um, yeah, Colonel Graff is really interesting because his morality is so vague, and I kind of love that in characters. Or is it
2: resolute? Like, his morality is, I don't have to have one, humanity can stay clean. Like his, kind of, He yeah. doesn't have a morality, or he has a very simple one.
1: Like, Ender... For a while really hates Graf because he kind of thinks of Graf as like kind of this evil, you know, remorseless dude who just ruins Ender's life again and again and again. And Graf, he's really thoughtfully trying to manipulate Ender, you know what I mean? He's yeah, spending so much time forming him very deliberately, again, like actually not unlike Ender. Ender deliberately destroys his enemies, and Graf sort of deliberately breaks Ender down so that he can get to that perfect general that he's trying to get.
2: Yeah, you remember those conversations he had with Anderson, where it's just saying, Anderson's saying, wow, like, you're what are you doing to this kid? You're a and piece
1: of shit. Yeah, Graf's <laughs> just like, no,
2: this is what has to be done. I know what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. And um, he did. Yeah, he absolutely did. And, I mean, Ender at first kind of thinks that Graf's his friend, and Graf They're kind not. of... <laughs> is not. (laughs) From the get, he like isolates Ender and Ender gets really pissed at him and they have this conversation. So Ender comes to Graf and he's like, why are you being so mean to me? You're making me freaking miserable. And Graf, he says this quote, which I think is really important to Ender's game and like the philosophy of the book. Okay. He says, human beings are free except when humanity needs them. Dot, dot, dot. We might both do despicable things, Ender. But if humankind survives, then we were good tools. What do you think about that?
2: I think it's an awesome quote because you see it like all over history, and even like in a lot of different sci-fi's. Yeah. Like, there's this kind of savior complex in sci-fi's. They love like the one guy that does does is the savior, saves humanity. Yeah. But like you, th- he's always talking about, or she's always talking about, like, oh no, like I, I'm packed into a corner or whatever. Like that's a constant theme.
1: Yeah, that sort of like pressure. I mean, isn't that the hero's journey kind of
2: exactly? It's and like uh, it's the idea that's prevalent through history. It's prevalent through all of literature. The idea that like you don't have really have rights if humanity needs you. It's that higher calling idea.
1: Yeah, exactly. Where the person's kind of like, no, maybe I don't freaking want to like sacrifice my life and happiness because you know the greater good needs me. Um, and Ender goes through this the whole book. It's like it's it's so important to who he is and I think it also really what's interesting about Graf in general to me is the fact that he seems to really take to heart the fact that like in order to do what has to be done to save humanity, you don't get to come out of it unscathed. Like there is no pure white savior in the real
2: world. Right. Yeah. Nobody comes through clean. And Graf knows this. Like he he says it to Anderson he's like, look, like, I know I'm a bad person. Yeah. I'm not a good guy. Yeah. But Graf is also, like, so essential to the continuation of humanity. Even after the book is over, you learn, I forget which books brought this up, but you hear about the Graf trials, and yeah. how Graf, like, was brought yeah, he to gets trial, because humanity was like, whoa, 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 this was not cool. Yeah, kids you some bad died shit. after
1: you, like... <laughs> Graf's practices led to some shit.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and he was kind of that master, like, master manipulator, that spy master idea. He was kind of like manipulating people all across the IF, and he had like a cabal in his head. I forget who, I think it was Anderson talked about this how, like, Graf had lists of people that owed him favors or that he had won the allegiance of. Yeah, that's true. That kind of he could call on to make things happen. He was the mover of the IF.
1: You know what I think is funny, too, is that, um, he apparently had no oversight from military police like there was the one point where they started talking about how bonzo was planning on coming after ender and like it was known, like the teachers knew the students knew everyone knew that bonzo wanted to get ender because ender had like showed him up one time too many and bonzo felt like really affronted by him and um the military police guy comes in and he says like I know I have no authority over you, I know I can't tell you to do anything, but I'm gonna recommend that you act, because the kid's gonna, like, end up dead. Thinking that Ender, who was, like, sort of understood by the higher-ups to be, hopefully the next savior of humanity, was in danger, but really, in the end, the reason Ender was the great savior of humanity was because he could handle himself and did too Bonzo's great misfortune.
2: <laughs> yeah, and Graph banked on that. He was like, "All right, listen, no." Uh, yeah, you Graf can't, knew. If Graph is like, if you can't handle this, if you can't win that fight, you're not going to win the fight. We need you to win.
1: Yeah, so basically, Graph intentionally put Ender's life in harm's way, or allowed Ender's life to be put in harm's way, knowing that if Ender died, then he, he wasn't, wasn't the one. Yeah. yeah.
2: And in the context of this universe, like, you look at that and you look at, well, Graph, like. Graf may have let one child die, or let a, even, like, let's say 100 child children die. But, like... Right. If humanity... The billions of make-up humanity survives, then... That's just a drop in the bucket.
1: He doesn't even really seem to care about his legacy. Because, no. I mean, he is dragged through the mud. And Ender said at the end of the book that, like, the stuff that he... That Graf was being judged on was mostly stuff that Ender did. So it was, <laughs> like... Ender, again... Did some stuff that wasn't great, and you know, talk about intent and whether or not that matters all you want. But, like, in the eyes of that world, when Ender was their savior, Graf was the one who ended up, you know, on the stand having to defend himself for his choices.
2: Yeah, and as far as Graf was concerned, his legacy is humanity. Like, as yeah, long absolutely. as humanity survives, and we learn in other books that humanity survives at least 3,000 years, that's Graf's legacy. That's a hell of a legacy
1: survives 3,000 years and spreads across the galaxy. Exactly. That pretty much seems like survives forever to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, like hundreds of worlds. Yeah. So when Ender eventually is in command of the fleet and doesn't know it, I think that's one of the most sort of moving things about the book, because he's sending all of these pilots... You know, into action, and you know, they're listening because that he's their commander, and they're just trusting that the military put someone responsible in charge, even though they left Earth 30, 50, 70 years ago, whatever. And um, they're just kind of following blindly these instructions. And I, you know, obviously they're good instructions because Ender prevails in the end, but like, for those of you who haven't read the book, it's I don't know what you're doing here, but we're happy to have you. <laughs> um, <laughs> the The humanity sent these fleets out over the years to um, the bugger homeworlds, just trusting that the right general would come along at the right time and be able to command the fleets as they arrived.
2: And the nuts thing to me, especially for the people that are on those fleets, is one with relativistic speeds. That's like dying. Yeah. Like, anything, anyone you knew, I'm assuming they didn't spend, like, entire families, or maybe they did. Maybe they sent you soldier and their family yeah. on these ships.
1: It's not discussed.
2: It's not discussed, which I think Because is, they're just soldiers. Yeah, they're soldiers who, It's
1: very kind of transactional, almost. Yeah, it's
2: like, we're going to trade these soldiers for human lives, but at the end of the day, maybe that's, well, maybe the fleet had 200,000 people in it. Like I said before, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. That's, you know, a fifth of a million, and a million's a hundredth of a billion. Like, the numbers add up to being, that's nothing and the humanity's most biggest concern there is like the spaceships
1: well you know what's funny too is that um they sent every ship they had do you realize that like
2: every scrap
1: yeah, every ship that was built between the second invasion and the events of Ender's game was sent just towards the bugger zone.
2: I think at some point they mentioned that, like, there wasn't a huge fleet in the area, and people kind of wondered where they were. Yeah. But they were, like, just assumed they were out by the belt waiting (laughs) for them to show up. They're somewhere. Yeah. They're
1: somewhere good. It's fine.
2: We just (laughs) talked about this before, that, like, um... Where did... What did people think happened? Because Ender kind of heard about this fleet that arrived there. He didn't, like, be sitting there on the computer doing a simulation, communicating at light speed, which we'll talk about later, with these ships... I feel like if he knew the fleet was out there, he would have connected one and two.
1: Yeah, that's and true. And
2: figured that, figured that situation out. But instead, he had no idea. It caught him off guard at the end when they told him. Yeah. But like, where did people think these ships were going? And I
1: wonder where the soldiers came from and like whether they went willingly.
2: Yeah, so we talked about that before. Like, They took the remaining fleet that was left after the second bugger invasion, right. equipped them with uh, technology that lets you communicate at light speed, and sent them. Past light speed. Well, instantaneous. instantaneous, right? Uh, communicate at instantaneous speeds and sent them out. Like, what did their families think happened to them? Because I feel like after the battle, they heard they won. Everyone's going, "Oh, great! If he's sur- coming, yeah, home. if Jimmy survived, <laughs> we're gonna have a great party." And Jimmy never came back, and no one else came back. <laughs> Jimmy
1: didn't get buried. Yeah. Jimmy just wasn't there. <laughs> and I feel like
2: in an interconnected world like that, people would start going, "Hey, did." Did, did Sally come home? No. Did James? No.
1: What happened to Dave? Yeah, where'd they all go?
2: <laughs> I would think <laughs> that people would notice that their family members never came home. Yeah, so maybe they told them... Maybe the IF told everyone that the entire fleet died? But, like... If I mean, that, they did really closely guard those propaganda videos. Right, but, like, if that's true, what did they tell them for the ships they sent after that? <laughs> yeah! Like, like, they were sending ship for routine, 80 years.
1: Routine mission. Oh, another ship lost. Yeah. It's like the Navy stage. Is everyone just,
2: hey, I'm <laughs> gonna, Is everyone just they're taking a, like, thinking that? That's and, sad. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, Navy. <laughs> is everyone sitting there just assuming that, like, the IF is the most incompetent military <laughs> force ever assembled?
1: Like, nobody's joining anymore because so they're like, I'm just going to fucking die. Yeah, like, I'm
2: going to die just from running into an asteroid. It
1: doesn't seem like it's going to go well. <laughs> no, it's like, where do they get these troops? And, like, asteroids are like space icebergs. I
2: wonder. <laughs> you can to see one-tenth of them? <laughs> yeah. So, I'm just wondering, like, what do you think? Like, do you think they went willingly, or do you think after that war, the second war, they were so pumped up on the anti-bugger propaganda that they were like, all right, let's go? Or what?
1: I like to think they went willingly. That's, like, my headcanon. Because it's not clear, and I am happier thinking that this was, like, really noble and not really sad.
2: Because it's this romantic idea that they, they trusted the system, they trusted their leaders. Like, listen, our brother was in the military, like, I'm going to be... We know that the military is kind of, like, you know, respect the military and all that, but, like, they're kind of disorganized.
1: You can't really expect the best and most efficient systems from the military. If if you told me in
2: 80 years, the military is not going to see any combat, but they're going to find the best possible leader to lead millions of men. And he's going to be 11. I would not trust that at all. (laughs) I would have a
1: lot of incredulity. So did they trust that, or did they not know that? Were they just told, like by their captains, we're going to the bugger homeworlds, like, that's it. Like, you know, were they told that and they trusted in their immediate super superiors, maybe? maybe? they thought their
2: captains were leading them and they trusted their captain?
1: Yeah, maybe, because I imagine that the orders are
2: filtered somehow. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a chain of command, sure. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense, I guess. I think my my reigning theory is that maybe they knew, but they knew, like, as they showed up, like, by the way... Our homeboy back on Earth is going to help us through this one. don't worry we got a guy. <laughs> we know a guy. Maybe they thought
1: Mazarakum was going to lead them.
2: Oh, that's a thought, and maybe the the argument was that like they're, they're just so dispersed that Mazarakum can't possibly lead all of them, so they left him on Earth to do instantaneous communication with everyone, obviously, or they left him on the relativistic ship that Mazarakum then survived a 100 years on. yeah, maybe that's what they told him because to, to command the dispersed fleets. I, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Why couldn't take his family, Peter? <laughs> it's so sad to me. I'm it's, like, that seems like some shit. It's, it's unnecessary. unnecessary. Did they just decide not to go? They were like, all right, that's fine for you, homeboy, but we're gonna chill on Earth.
2: Maybe, actually,
1: I can sort of see that. Like, it's like, for the kids.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. The kids are like, well, I can live eternity on my with my parents on a ship, or I can hang out with, you know. <laughs> Honestly,
1: this is like weirdly. This is weirdly like practical, but I feel like it depends how old the kids are. Because if the kids were, like, all in their 20s, I feel like his wife could have gone with him.
2: Yeah. Or if the kids were, like, six, I feel like they might have been, like, cool, spaceship. But if they're, like, like, 14, yeah, teen angst is powerful.
1: (laughs) You want Jamie to leave her boyfriend behind?
2: (laughs) They've been dating for two months.
1: (laughs) It's a real love. (laughs) That's true. You don't understand me. (laughs) Right.
2: All right, but here's the real question, and this is my theory, that actually they got the fleet to leave... By, like, giving them this romanticized idea, like, listen, we need you to go be the sword of propaganda. humanity. Propaganda. You know, stop being the shield. Which was true. Be the sword, right. They were being the sword. That's beautiful. But maybe then they were like, hey, listen, um, you go ahead, you send a message to your family, explain what happened. Yeah. And they just didn't send them.
1: Because you may didn't know. That. The IF does not send many messages you ask him to. <laughs> I
2: mean, the, as
1: Ender learned. The IF
2: did filter every one of Ender's messages. By filter, I mean stone walls. <laughs> it was a wall. <laughs>
1: they were not allowed to pass. Yeah, there
2: was. It was semi-permeable. No, it was no, no, no permeable. Impre-
1: impermeable. Oh, that what it's that's, <laughs> that's what that's called. <laughs> it's not called not semi-permeable. <laughs> <laughs> it's just called impermeable. Well, that's my theory,
2: though. They or impenetrable, right. even. Thank you. You have options. Go off and serve us, and we'll let your parents know what happened. And they just didn't. And they said the bugger's completely. They destroyed the fleet. I think that's. But again,
1: what about all the ships afterwards?
2: I don't know. I can't explain that
1: one. (laughs) No, no one can.
2: Maybe they got on the ships and they said, "Listen, we need you to go do something." And maybe they just pulled the same shit every time. (laughs) Every time, (laughs) (laughs) Kurt. I don't know. Like, or they only told the pilots, (laughs) or maybe they maybe they told the families that they were like going to scout nearby star systems.
1: Maybe
2: I don't know. Like that's possible.
1: I liked your theory that they took their families.
2: That's my reigning theory for the future ones. I think for the people that were, like, around Jupiter, it was probably just like, bye, guys.
1: Do we know that they did that, or is that just a theory?
2: That's, like, they put Ansibles on them, I think, and sent them. I think that was it. Shit. Like, they just strapped them on board and left. That's why the... the that sucks. The <laughs> most technology... Like, most uh, inefficient technology-speaking, like, the ones with the worst technology were at the bugger homeworlds, at the core of the bugger's base, Right. Because that Shop was, like, Ansibles the first ones that left.
1: And the doctor device.
2: They had Ansibles, and they had really bad little doctors. Remember, they have shorter ranges. That's right. So, I guess that kind of moves us on, on to the next uh, topic, which is, like, the technology. So, we talked about the internet. That was, like, a major thing about it. I think also it's important to note that uh, this was released, like, just after or during the space race. So, basically, people still had hope in humanity and our future.
1: <laughs> people were actually investing in space at the <laughs> time.
2: Right. We're not just going, you guys are fine, right? Cool.
1: Right. Exactly. Here's
2: $12 I found in my pocket <laughs> uh, here in NASA. So, like... That was kind of what was going on. And you see, like, during the first invasion, there really wasn't a space present, I feel like. I feel like they didn't... There, like, wasn't... There was implied there, like, wasn't a fleet at all. Like, no one had ships.
1: Not not a space fleet, because they just nuked them, right?
2: Yeah, I think that was the solution. They nuked them over China. They
1: nuked... Their, like, humanity nuked Earth to get rid of
2: yeah. <laughs> the buggers. And, like, that sucks. That fortunately, the buggers
1: landed, you know? They yeah, fortunately, lucky.
2: the buggers landed and chilled in one place.
1: Yeah, they made it real easy on us. Yeah,
2: easy target, because <laughs> they expected we were intelligent. But in the second fleet... second invasion, rather, we had like a fleet. So that means in 20 years, according to the timelines that are online, they're pretty vague about them. Like, we built a fleet. Yeah. And then we learned that from the Ender's Game that we built a fleet that was capable of going to relativistic speeds. Yeah. Like, maybe that was... Real fast. Yeah, we built them in 20... Uh, in every way. Yeah. So we built them in, like, 20 years. Like, that's amazing. If yeah. you told me in 20 years we'd have relativistic ships, I'd laugh at you. Yeah, no, totally. If you told me in 20 years we had, rel- we had ships that could go to Mars, I'd laugh at you. Yeah. Or I think people. we
1: have ships that can go to Mars. With
2: people on them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> A lot.
1: People have... Wait, no. Ships have gone to Mars. Not people,
2: people have not.
1: See our next podcast for that story. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So I'm like, this is what we're talking about. So like, I'm thinking about the uh, the the former home World. Like, we went to the speed of light. Like, we left sent those ships right after the war, right? And that's what the books talk about, right?
1: That's what you're saying. I believe you. They, I, mean, I don't think they said it in the book. Okay. Not in the Ender's Game.
2: Then I'm thinking about the, uh, said it in the. I read the entire thing. Enderverse, and I'm just like, Peter spent a lot of
1: time with OSC.
2: I spent too much time with OSC. Too much time to be gotten to later.
1: To be gotten. To. <laughs>
2: So, I think that's kind of an important point, but you brought up a cool point when we were talking uh doing some like pre pro about like what like how like what are the factors that would have made this possible this incredible leap in technology possible
1: yeah, I mean, I think that it's well it's funny because you can totally see the echoes of like fear of the Soviet Union throughout the book just sort of playing into the earth politics, but like it's so key that humanity is united in terror and because of terror and I think as a result that's like the only reality in which I can picture like us achieving that kind of technology that fast you know what I mean Mm -hmm. because like currently like think about the space race when it was in its prime and how it was like All of the best scientists in America and, like, the West are working on the American Space Program. And all of the best scientists in the Soviet Union and so on and so forth are working on the Soviet Space Program. And, like, can you imagine if those people combined and, like, put together their ideas and got to collaborate and, like, bounce things back and forth off of each other? That would, I would think, more than double the rate of production. So it makes sense to me that, like... In a world that's united, and where people aren't really so much looking out for their own selves, but for, you know, the greater good, then it, I can see maybe in that world, maybe we would achieve light speed in 20 years. Maybe.
2: <laughs> okay, so as far as the technology is concerned, the battle room? Like, the battle room I get. Like, it's 0G, right?
1: Yeah, it's pretty intuitive. And, like, the whole structure of the... um of the battle school.
2: Yeah, right. It's like a sort it's, it's got that
1: artificial right. gravity through centrifugal exactly. force. Exactly. It's
2: like a toroid. It's rotating. Yeah. It's easy. They even talk about, like, they had, like, the good details of, like, you know, Ender walking and, like, saying you can barely feel the upward curve of the floor.
1: Yeah, like, exactly. Right, cool.
2: I get that all. But here's where I have issue, right? <laughs> it's the hook. The hook. Like, come on. How does that even work? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you. I get the unfreezing thing. That's just a remote control. Because every theory you can come up with has a retort yeah, <laughs> right. You were talking about this earlier, like the uh, you talking you talking about like electromagnetic system. Yeah, cool. One, if you do it from the remote, like where do you get all that power, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Where where does that come from?
2: Right. Yeah, and if we talk about like the room generating electric force, like or electromagnetic force, like why is it only affecting you know that kid? Right. Like I don't get that at all. I mean, like, have you come up with anything else? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it controls microjets on their uniforms. Well, that's
1: wild.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Like maybe Can you imagine the little plastic? Like, I mean, they're rigid. Like they're they're like they're yeah. Their whole they bodies wouldn't need to be hooked if they frozen. were rigid. Yeah. So like maybe that's how it works because now their body's rigid. So like I'm trashing straws here. I know. <laughs> I
1: but like. know. But the hook's one of those scientific or like sci-fi details that's sort of explained by like the aliens had it. So we have yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Now. <laughs> it's like
2: a Star Wars thing. Like we're going to hyperspace, and they never talk about like what uh, hyperspace. Like, i
1: was thinking more like Mass Effect. Where the only reason that they have like interstellar travel is because they stumbled upon.
2: But they justified a mass relay. that technology. <laughs> they're like, yeah, these mass effect fields, and like that's theoretically a, a thing that could happen. Like, yeah,
1: no, I'm I not think there's saying
2: more credence in Mass okay, Effects than fair. there is in the Hook.
1: That's fair. Yes. Yes. So it, is, it is one of those just, we got it from the aliens, don't worry about it. Things. Yeah, for,
2: to the seven people that are listening, if you have like a good theory for the hook, I'd love to hear it. Because I was looking around a line and I couldn't find anything. Yeah. Like. There's,
1: yeah. I don't know. I think magnets are the best option, but I don't know where they got the power. <laughs> really big it's, magnets. You know what it is? It's like a nuclear powered bracer. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a little tiny reactor in there. It's
2: fine. It's good.
1: <laughs> don't worry about it.
2: So, I think the other really cool thing, though, is the little doctor.
1: Yeah, the little doctor's cool. It's a cool idea for like a the, weapon.
2: What's it called? The uh, the, the molecular disruptor? Yeah.
1: Molecular disassociation device? Disruption device? Sure, yeah, because it was We should MDT. have known what this was called.
2: <laughs> One of those. Well, anyway, so, like, you, if you've read the book, hopefully, um, you know it's about, like, it's shot at an object and it causes all the molecules to kind of freak out. Now...
1: Well... It break just, apart into yeah. electrons, neutrons, and protons. Well, oh, no, not,
2: no, not do that. Oh, no, 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 no. you're
1: right. Yeah, right. They specifically say they can't share electrons. So covalent bonds are just
2: Right, yeah, erased, so it erased, forces gone. all atoms to, like, lose those covalent bonds, and, and I'm assuming it, to some extent ionic bonds. Basically, it breaks down objects into their base elements.
1: Yeah, because a lot of things in humans are held together with hydrogen bonds, so.
2: Right. So that's a little, well, that's like a weird gray area. Anyway
1: hydrogen bonds aren't a gray area. We understand Between ionic and covalent, aren't they? No, I mean, it's like kind of an ionic bond. Right. This is where my poor understanding of chemistry comes into play.
2: Very bad one, too.
1: (laughs) When I say we understand hydrogen bonds, I mean scientists. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. Not us. No, no, no. But like,
2: hydrogen bonds are like really weak ionic bonds. They're weak. I know they're weak. That's all I got.
1: Not ionic bonds, because ionic bonds are where um, you donate or... Uh, except. This a is a super good
2: podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. I hope everyone's understanding us explaining bonds. Hydrogen bonds are where um there's like a more massive atom and it pulls away the electrons. So there's like a slight negative and a slight positive charge.
2: Right. So I think that's fine. I and think so that, like, that can chill. It's like water. Yeah. I mean it's it's tension. That's
1: probably fine. Surface tension. So everyone's DNA, you're good.
2: But everything else in you's gone. Yes. So like all right. So the little doctor was like obviously pivotal in humanity's fight against the buggers. Yeah. 'Cause like
1: hydrogen bonds wouldn't exist because you need to be a covalently bonded molecule to have a hydrogen bond with other molecules.
2: Oh, high five.
1: High five. We <laughs> figured it out.
2: Alright, we got it. So <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the last five minutes of discussing hydrogen bonds. Trying bonding.
1: to remember chemistry. <laughs> you wouldn't guess I'm a bio person. You, you would promise. guess I'm a mechanic. You, guess... <laughs> <laughs> you would guess Peter's specialty, but not mine probably.
2: So I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, what exactly, how exactly that would work.
1: The, the MD device. I was trying to remember what we were talking about. Right, the about MD that. device. <laughs> and why the field grows, that's my question. Because the idea is, like, the more stuff it destroys, the stronger it gets. So do you think it just, like, gets raw energy from release from the bonds?
2: Oh, that makes sense, because bonds are, are, are energy. Like, you can, if you break a bond, you get energy. That's how nuclear reactors work.
1: Okay, cool. I want to make sure you know what you're talking about. I so, don't oh, really know what i'm talking so, about like, like, as much so if you, i know there's if, energy in bonds but if
2: you break the bonds you get energy so i guess that would make sense that's how it propagates and it loses energy by But how does that backwards. energy
1: translate into ruining more bonds well if i knew
2: that i would be in an arms race <laughs> yeah. that's a weapon you would not want to use though <laughs> not on earth talk about that's mutual pretty, destruction huh <laughs> <laughs> bye guys that's pretty strictly a space weapon yeah. well like you see its effect but you also see like it's not like totally the master like you know, Ender won his first battle with it like pretty handily. Yeah. But as the buggers learned about it, and they you know got more knowledgeable, they counteract right. So they just spread By spreading out. out. Yeah. Right. So clearly, it's not like this massive uh, end all be all. Exactly. It's not like a super weapon. Yeah. Well, it's pretty super. It's weapon. a
1: super weapon. You also can't you know spam the battlefield with nukes.
2: Right. It's not like a one shot <laughs> win.
1: Most super weapons are kind of like
2: <laughs> let's chill.
1: Let's... No, but like fighters have them. Yeah, no, that's, that's the weird that thing, way they, thing they about they it. Because it's like a super f- weapon that everyone's got.
2: Yeah, it's like, but don't use it. We, like, use it. <laughs> it's like an
1: AR 15. Don't. JK. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I, I don't really get, like, how do they work? I mean, like, maybe they can work by forcing atoms to kind of get. Maybe they can shock them. Like, maybe it's like a pulse uh, of energy. Maybe. And maybe that's how it propagates. Maybe it gets energy from the breaking of the bonds. Okay and it propagates that way I see what you're saying and then as it uses energy to move outward but it gets more bonds, so it's cool but like that's why it kind of dissipates at the edge
1: yeah why it can't do more destruction without
2: more right. destruction they talk about the quote unquote mechanics of the, the MD device in the prequel books the Formic Wars because they talk about like the mining company that invented it right. before it was appropriated and used to be the main weapon of humanity
1: <laughs> oh that's destructive that'll boy kill, that's that'll, destructive that will
2: kill a lot of stuff oh man <laughs> So it's like, a
1: butte.
2: I guess that's the best argument we can come up with that, right? It uses, it. maybe it's a shock. Oh, we're not like an watch shock. Get, like, like a current. Yeah, well, maybe. Some sort of... Ex- listeners. Let's call it exotic particles. Hey, listeners. That we don't understand, because that's what scientists just use the word exotic for.
1: Remember when we said we could talk about, like, the physics part of things? More than the philosophy? More than the philosophy. Well, to be fair, this is not <laughs> physics. Even this is...
2: Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's just chemistry, which we don't understand. We don't understand chemistry. I almost don't failed chemistry. Worry. Same. So, anyway. Chem too. We. Yeah, that's kind of a cool idea, though. Like, I like that idea. And I also think it's cool, like, with the mining. Like, it was founded in mining. It yeah. makes sense. Imagine if for, we had a device for miners. Like, for space miners today? Imagine if, like, we went and found some, got we some just space just go miners.
1: dissolve a freaking asteroid and then, like, net up any yeah, and just, like, put a magnet in the middle of light. it.
2: It's like, look at all this iron. <laughs> cool, guys.
1: Flush with iron right now. Yeah, it's, it's great.
2: lining my pockets with iron. <laughs> I mean, if you're doing, like, two kilometers of, you know, two, like, kilometers cubed of iron, it's a lot of iron. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a pretty... That is a lot of iron. <laughs> that's <laughs> in a technical lot of anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Two kilometers cubed of, like, water, isn't it? I mean like in the gram scheme of water, like it's not a lot of water. He
1: said the gram scheme.
2: (laughs) So alright. That's the little doctor. We don't have nothing else to say. It's BS.
1: Well, yes. I mean It's
2: not as BS as the hook. I was gonna say (laughs) the
1: hook's BS. The little doctor's the little doctor
2: can stay. All right, it can chill. It, it can, can hang. chill.
1: This is futuristic enough that I can see it.
2: All right, but the one thing we can almost om- we can justify with not current technology, but at least current understanding of physics, is the ansible. So this is kind of, it's basically quantum mechanics, except not because ansibles communicate with every <laughs> other ansible.
1: It's quantum mechanics from somebody who doesn't know quantum mechanics,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? So quantum mechanics is just like with background this part of it are entangled particles where one particle will mimic the state of another mm-hmm. but it's specifically point to point right right it's like that that's this kind of whole spiel these two <clears> particles <throat> are now entangled and now they can transfer energy across interstellar distances instantaneously actually China recently just did an experiment where they were able to transfer uh, basically it was like they call them quantum teleportation but it was entanglement just teleportation oh, yeah, from uh, a surface installation to a space installation That's awesome. So they're actually able to do it, like, over kilometers, which is really interesting for kind of the implications of... Because think about, like, even Martian probes, right? That's, like, um, I think the time delay to Mars is, what, 10 minutes?
1: Wait, are you sure of describing the Ansible, then, when you say that? Like, it was able to transmit data from here to there instantaneously.
2: Right, yeah, but not the Ansible, because the Ansible, the big part of that is, is network communication. Okay. It's, like, from point A to point B through Zeta. Like Yes. It's mat- that but that doesn't work with quantum I, entanglement, yes, I yes. right? That's point to point.
1: Yes. But I guess I'm asking like what what is the limitation of like how much it does it limit how much data you can send or just how many places you can send it?
2: Quantum mechanics?
1: Yeah, real quantum mechanics. So real
2: quantum mechanics, as we understand it, and as I understand it, a twenty year old <laughs> college student. Uh, <laughs> it's not limited necessarily by the data. Because, like, if I take, you know, two particles, any way I manipulate particle A, particle B will mimic. Right. My information I'm limited by is only limited by the, the format of how I'm transferring it. So, like, you know, rocking particle A, like, by 30 degrees in the Z direction, go like off the Z axis or whatever, or off the ZY axis, means this, right? right. So how I choose to tra- to translate that information is my only limiter, and how fast my computers can recognize the movement of particle B and make the motion of particle A happen. So and that's my how, how quickly you can manipulate it. Right. Exactly. So my my only limiter is how quickly I manipulate it. It's so, so the
1: idea is that you would use like, for a very crude example, you would basically like Morse code, one atom.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You would do some sort of
1: dot dot dash. Some dot. sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah
2: built code into one atom that both sides understand. It's like having, like, doing a cipher. Like, you have to have the key to the cipher to understand it.
1: Well, that's, like, Morse code.
2: Exactly. <laughs> but, like, most people, Morse code. This is bad. Like, mine else This is, like, secret. It. I mean,
1: mine was... <laughs> <laughs> but,
2: but the Ansible, it's crazy because it's, like, they talk about the felotes, I think they call them, in the end? Yes. Yes, yeah, so the felotes are, like, these little strings, which are kind of string theory, but whatever. Um, not related that communicate like are linked to each other across these interstellar distances is they're all linked to each other it's all
1: networked yeah
2: right that doesn't make any sense according like to quantum spaghetti. mechanics like it would work this quantum way spaghetti. if they were like all right we have you know a bank of quantum entanglements of these particles that are all entangled right and each one's to point a point b i mean obviously that would get massive at some point unless they all went to one central location right like a switchboard
1: yes i would think it would be a switchboard right
2: right that's what like, it have to be but
1: could you you couldn't switch them could you are well, entangled, could you re-entangle? No, you can't else? re-entangle,
2: but what you can do is like if you have point A has entangled particles that are like they have like 23 more. Entangled oh, you're particles. saying you could like relate, yeah, exactly. Relate and things. you just have a computer link between them,
1: yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying like the Ansible, I feel like with enough nodes, could sort of be done,
2: right? The but Ansible, it, but could it would be work. like
1: one Ansible to another Ansible, like exactly walkie-talkie or something, exactly. That's it's like whisper how down the lane, work, but it's fine,
2: except better, hopefully. Yeah, well, it's, it's, like, like, it's, like, it's like,
1: a, um, like a cup and string phone.
2: Yeah, except like the other guy at the end of your cup and string has another cup and string. And he's talking yes. to like, a third guy. Yeah, exactly. Right, so that's like, that's the only way I could see so this So it's work.
1: basically like a children's game.
2: Yeah, it's a children's game with quantum <laughs> Quantum <mechanic>. children's game. <laughs> that just means a little children's game.
1: I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, it does. So that's yes, it the end of I suppose. Although it's weird that uh, OSC was kind of thinking about this at the time, because like,
1: well, that, how long have we known about quantum
2: entanglement? A while, but Einstein was like, that's stupid. Einstein <laughs> called it... Sp- Einstein was the person that called it spooky action at a distance.
1: Is that what he called it? Yeah. That's hilarious. They talk about quantum
2: entanglement at a distance, and he <laughs> was like, wow, spooky... So you're saying is just does some spooky things you can't really understand or explain. That's adorable. And that's what <laughs> Einstein thought of it. I'm
1: going to go do some real physics. But, like, <laughs> Odyssey
2: was raised in the era of, like, the atomic era that Einstein ushered in.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
2: So, like, the fact that he was willing to, like, be like, hmm, that's cool, I'm gonna write this science fiction book that's pretty well researched and well founded in most of its facts, Yeah. and completely disregard Einstein, that's wild to me. You know,
1: it's funny, I feel like, just sort of from a general perspective, it's a lot more important to really research, like, near science fiction than Mm -hmm. far science fiction. Like, you can do whatever the hell you want if you just put a couple millennia between your story and now. I can justify whatever. Yeah, you don't even have to justify, it's just there. And you're like, well, I guess humanity's progressed a lot. I mean, basically, like, you know, ancient rome to now
2: but oh cool so you're like gods that's cool okay
1: all right cool got it um that's really justifiable. but like when you're doing one that's in the next couple hundred years it's like you really gotta kind of nail the details if you want to be taken seriously
2: yeah and at this point i'm surprised if he was willing to throw einstein out that much that he wasn't like all right and um wormholes cool guys cool
1: i didn't need to because he was just sort of i think he wanted to use the mechanic of um relativistic I guess that was speed a major part of his,
2: like, the tragedy of relativistic speed.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was, like, really poignant.
2: Like, as long as... You, if humanity can never figure out how to go to faster than light travel, any, like, colonization effort will be so heart-wrenching for yeah, people Yeah, it that will
1: be bittersweet gone. no matter what.
2: Yeah. Because maybe, like...
1: Because you're leaving behind everything you've known. Even if you get to take, like, your family with you. What about your extended family, your friends? Like, right. you're leaving stuff behind. I mean, not everybody, I guess, has a network, so it's good for people who, like, want a fresh start and don't really have roots, but, like...
0: Right. I a think that won't efforts. be everyone.
1: Exactly. I, I mean, it's, it's actually really um, reminiscent of immigration, like, a couple hundred years ago.
2: Because that communication across the river, uh, across the ocean, rather, wasn't there.
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, like, just think about what it would be like to be, like, a poor laborer and, like, the Industrial Revolution. And you're, you know, going to America to seek a better life. And maybe you'll get one and maybe you won't. But, like, either way, you, you kissed your whole life behind. Like, you're, you're not a part back. of poland or whatever anymore like you were in america now and yeah usually treated like crap to boot but at least the colonization of space doesn't have natives to be mean to you
2: right we killed all of them
1: <laughs> well yes we did in this universe in this yes. particular
2: fiction we murdered them all
1: <laughs> the great irony of this is that like even though sort of in the grand scheme of things the morality of the series states that the destruction of the buggers was wrong largely because the only reason we destroyed them was because we could never speak to them um we still like the 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 security of humanity not just from threat but like its ability to be a key player in the universe was secured by our destruction of the buggers because even if we hadn't you know gone to war with them they still lived on the same kind of planets as us they would have been our competitors in colonization and they were way ahead of us like we might never have gotten off of earth if ender hadn't killed all the buggers
2: yeah so in some way like i mean we already just heard kind of talking about like the idea of, like ender is the savior of humanity mm-hmm. but like ender is also like the only reason colonization worked yeah because like his understanding or as empathic as they may have been like, they... Because, you know, even the queen he, talk, he met was like, listen, we understood why you did what you did, and we forgive you. She specifically talked about how we forgive yeah. you. Yeah. Like, we understand. hmm And that's kind of a major theme of all this. Like, Ender talks about how he was only able to beat the buggers because he was empathetic with them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of... Uh, probably the most uh, most famous quote of Ender's game is that... I'm going to misquote it, but, like, if you understand... <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to be
2: wrong here for a second. I,
1: I could look it up, but I'm just going to be wrong. <laughs> so, be prepared. <laughs> Um, if you understand an enemy well enough to beat them, then you, like, we have to understand them so intimately that you automatically have to love them. And when you love them, that's the exact moment that you bring their destruction. So that's why Andrew has, like, this deep feeling of self-loathing the whole book, because he's, like... Every time he destroys an enemy, he does it because he understands them and he loves them in that moment. And, like, I think most of all, empathy is what makes... And they're different from Peter. Not to circle back too much, but like,
2: but to circle back, but
1: I mean to circle back a little bit. <laughs>
2: well, I think that's kind of a weird. There's, like open mindedness of, of Orson Scott Carr, talking about how like the aliens were like totally chill, yeah, and we didn't need to kill them because he's kind Unlike of the worst. The gays. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So
1: according to OSC, not me. <laughs> yeah,
2: so Orson Scott Card is kind of the biggest bigot I've ever found He's in literature.
1: A little bit of a monster.
2: Like we just want a real quick spiel on this because it should be known that if you know these things already, you should understand that we are not like here supporting OSC. We're not
1: OSC apologists. We just have loved Ender's Game for a long we time. Also we also hate him knew now, about him. <laughs> like, and we hate him more every day. Really, <laughs> every new thing he does. Yeah, I
2: mean, I remember when you and I were on the phone the other day, and you had you were reading Ender's Game, to kind of prep for this. Yeah, and. And you mentioned, you're like, oh, so he was a little tippin' out of OSC. Did you know he was a diehard communist? <laughs> oh, I did it. That's weird.
1: <laughs> a diehard communist who then also wrote a short story wherein Obama became a Hitler slash Stalin type fascist right.
2: leader right. So, and he was also like a republic didn't he, he say he was a republic and
1: yeah I mean he supports the war on terror and he supported John McCain so I'm like what is your deal homie I don't get
2: him you said specifically like he was ba- he, he wrote a story that basically his only problem with communist like with the uh, Soviet Union was that it wasn't communist enough yeah
1: he was what one- he claims he's one of those communists and yet he like freaking <laughs> compares Obama to Hitler <laughs> yeah, be... Obama being like one of the most socially progressive presidents that we've ever had, and like you would think he'd be on board with him considering what he said about his fiscal policy. But like, and also, nah. like,
2: he's like, I mean, you see in the later books where he like segregates planets according to race.
1: Listen, yeah, it gets really problematic in the later books, and like and you don't notice it until one day you
2: notice it, and you can never forget it.
1: Yeah, I honestly, I'm, like, a much different person now than I was when I originally read these books, and, like, I don't think I knew much about him when I originally read the, like, the quartet, the underquartet. I didn't know anything about him. Yeah, so, like, it didn't really color my perception, but it colors it in retrospect.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> I still think they were great books, but they're, you
1: know... With some issues. With
2: some definite issues. And this
1: game is the least problematic of anything he's written.
2: Absolutely. The, the Lusitania trilogy were terrible. Ooh, the Shadow Quartet...
1: We don't want to talk about the shadow quartet. Just real quick, he literally took one of the characters.
2: (laughs) It's terribly homophobic. Where like, where the main character literally tells his friend, he's like, "Listen, like, listen." You can sleep with a woman if you try hard enough.
1: Like, I know you don't want to, but you should. Yeah. It's the, your responsibility. And as his a man. wife <laughs> is like, oh,
2: man, I don't want to fight in the wars. I just want to have children. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but it was definitely like a forced thing. Like, that's not the character she was in any Yeah, scene. she
1: was like a badass soldier lady, and then they just, like, they nerfed her.
2: Yeah, and all of a sudden <laughs> she, she was like, like, I'm
1: ready to be a mother at 14.
2: Yeah, she's like, <laughs> I need this now.
1: I'm ready. It's my time.
2: So, bottom line, OSC is a bad person. He's a bigot. He's really backwards. Well, we in a don't support. Always. Port OSC, we do like his literature.
1: We do really like. Well, it. some of it.
2: Very limited of Specifically, now, actually.
1: Ender's Game and mostly the Lusitania Quartet.
2: Children of the Fleet was pretty good, too. I haven't like read that. it yet. It was pretty good. Okay, good to know. Anyway,
1: but the point is, he's just with a great assault, and if you are sort of a boycotter of him, we totally respect that. You stick to your virtues, and I'm proud of you.
2: And use this You're podcast as how us. to get into it.
1: Yeah, we'll tell you all about yeah, it. Yeah, we'll tell you all about free. it for
2: free. Exactly.
1: <laughs> you won't be funding him at all.
2: <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Hey, guys. Peter here. I'm just going to jump in here real quick at the end. We were originally going to just go ahead and tag on what the smart people think to the end of this But we decided not to because that ended up being almost an hour. This episode is already about an hour. So that's just too long for you guys to download all at once and listen to and really commit to it. So I'm just going to jump in here real quick and plug our websites and my other podcast on the end here. So here we go. You can find our network, Signifying Nothing Network, online at signifyingnothingnetwork.com. You can find uh, this specific podcast page at uh, signifyingnothingnetwork.com forward slash sci-fi sidebar there you can find uh, more material that we use for the show, you can find uh, a the material we use to research what the smart people think uh, you can find all sorts of stuff there, you can also find the other podcast we are doing the one I do, where basically I just try to blow your mind with some uh, facts about space and shit, it's called uh, The Universe and You, you can find that hopefully everywhere you can find this podcast and also on our website Signifying Nothing network.com forward slash I think it's uh, T-U-A-Y uh, Tango Uniform Alpha Yankee so uh, just go ahead and check that out I'd really appreciate it. those are our uh, shorter episodes and uh, I think you might you know, really enjoy them if you enjoy um, a little space so if you want to get in touch with us you can find us at facebook.com forward slash sci-fi sidebar you can also search uh, our the signifying nothing network is on there too so you can go ahead and give that page a like And just, you know, tell us what you think of it. Uh, I would really appreciate you to uh, subscribe, comment, review, you know, whatever you want to do. Just really get our name out there, share it with your friends and all that. We are a new podcast, and my sister and I are really, uh, we really enjoy things like this, and we really hope we can find a community that does too, and uh, hopefully provide a much-needed resource. So again, this has been Sci-Fi Sidebar by the Signifying Nothing Network, a tale told by idiots.